I have learned a great deal from a good friend of mine who is Egyptian. I've learned a great deal about Middle Eastern culture. Among the things that I have learned is you never sit in a Middle Eastern home like this, gentlemen. You never expose the sole of your foot. It's not done. That's offensive. Following the attacks of 9-11, as part of our war on terror, the United States overthrew the government of Iraq and toppled her dictator, Saddam Hussein. Exactly 20 years and two weeks ago today, April 9th, 2003, U.S. Marines and local Iraqis collectively toppled a statue of Hussein that had been erected just the year before in Baghdad in honor of his 65th birthday. You may, you may remember seeing video of that particular event where children were standing on the statue and adults were beating the statue with the soles of their shoes. Collectively, those children and adults were showing great disdain, contempt, hostility, even hatred for the man represented in that statue. Two millennia before, Middle Eastern culture, it was even then a part of the culture that you didn't expose the sole of your foot. Why is that? That's, that's the culture Jesus lived in. Our text this morning gives us some understanding of that cultural habit. I want you to turn to the fourth gospel again this morning. In our continuing study of the gospel according to St. John, we find ourselves in a new section this morning. Chapter 13 begins a series of seven chapters that, that collectively report what takes place in less than 24 hours. In chapter 13, Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his men. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus speaks to his men. At that point, uh, uh, Judas has, has left, so he, Jesus is, is speaking uh, to, to, to just the 11. In, in chapter 17 of John's Gospel, Jesus prays an amazing prayer. We call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane. Chapter 18, he is arrested. Chapter 19, he is executed. All of this body of material, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, all happened within just a 24, less than a 24-hour period of 
time. By the time we get to the end of chapter 12, Jesus' public ministry is done. He is focused on his mission, what he is there to do, namely to give his life as a sacrifice. The Apostle John sets the tone for what we're going to um, experience over these next several chapters. Follow along with me as I read, beginning at verse 1 of John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were of the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then, then wash not only my feet, but, but, but also my hands and my, and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. I divided this section into two parts. The end is nigh. Second part, wash and dry. You'll notice in the first section, the first four verses, that there's a couple pieces of knowledge that are at the forefront of Jesus' mind. Middle of verse 1, you'll find the word knowing. And then again at verse 3, you find the word knowing. Verse 1. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart from this world to the Father. Secondly, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come, back, he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Dot, dot, dot. Jesus had crystal clear knowledge of his task, his mission. He came 
for one express purpose, live a perfect life and die as a perfect sacrifice. Everything that Jesus did was focused on that mission. He had one thing to accomplish, and it was all coming to a head. He knew that he would be on the cross of Calvary in about 12 hours. Now, the bigger picture for Jesus was knowing not just that he came to die. That was a part of the process. The bigger picture showed Jesus exalted in heaven next to the Father, having completed his appointed mission. He knew that there would be nothing and no one who could or would step in front of him and delay or thwart his plan. Not the devil, not Simon Iscariot, no one, no thing. He knew what he was there to do, what would follow, and consequently, because of that knowledge, he made two choices. First one was, is that Jesus loved his own to the end. Verse 1 again. Knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Knowing he had this mission, this plan to fulfill, knowing he would be departing this world and be exalted in heaven, with that knowledge, Jesus chose this thing, first of all, to love his own. I'm reminded of chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They, uh, I know them and, and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That kind of protection, that kind of, of provision, Jesus lovingly gives to his men. Now it says that, that he, he loved them to the end. To the end of what? To the end of Jesus' life? Yes. Well, what about to the end of their life? Yes. What about to the end of their spiritual life? Well, that's never going to happen. But if it possibly could, yes! He will love his own all the way to the end. To infinity and beyond. Jesus said in uh, John chapter 15, Greater love has no man than this, that he, what? Lay down his life for his friend. And Jesus calls those who believe in him his friends. 
They're his people. They are his own. These are the objects of his sacrificial, substitutionary, propitiatory sacrifice. His death won them forgiveness, everlasting life, peace with Almighty God. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. That is a superlative love, a love that goes to the uttermost. Because of Jesus' knowledge of why he was there and where he was going, he loved his own all the way to the end, however we might define that. Secondly, verse 3, knowing that the Father has, had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God, was going back to God, he, verse 4, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. All right, we need, we need to have an extended explanation of what's going on here. Bear with me. We find from verse 1 that this is the feast of the Passover. Now, technically, Passover is one meal. It's at the end of a week-long feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, sometimes, because Passover is, is the meal, the event that that particular feast is celebrating, that week-long feast. Sometimes the whole week is called Passover, but technically it's just that one meal at the end of the week. It commemorates the amazing, miraculous gift of God where his people, the Israelites, enslaved in Egypt, are released like that. The entire labor force of Egypt. The Hebrews outnumbered the Egyptians. And they allowed the entire labor force to walk out of the country. Never to return. Wow. That particular meal celebrated that event when God made that happen. And the angel of death passed over the Israelites and struck all of the firstborn of Egypt. Now, Passover is a big deal. Um, Passover is the kind of meal that we might liken to uh, Thanksgiving or, or Christmas or an Easter. It's where you get out your best plateware and your nice flatware, and your sparkling goblets for, to, to, for, to drink out of. And, and you get the best tablecloth, and you wear your best clothes. It is a big deal. Now, Jesus, on this particular occasion, previously instructed a couple of his men to prepare for the Passover meal. And so on, uh, on, on Thursday afternoon, his disciples 
did what they needed to do in order to make ready. Among the things that they did was to make sure that there was a basin, water, and a towel by the front door. And then they, they went home and they got ready. Now for a Passover meal, before you got into your nicest duds, you would bathe and you would be clean and shiny and ready to go. But then you'd have to walk to wherever it was that you were celebrating the meal, unless it was right there in your home. For the disciples, they had to walk. Now, in doing so, they, they didn't have um, they didn't have asphalt streets. They didn't have concrete sidewalks. They had dirt, and so you walked through the dirt and mud if there was water. And you squished bugs between your toes. And you occasionally walked through manure. So do you, so do you understand now maybe a little bit of why this is culturally offensive to show the sole of your foot? So dirty. Disgustingly dirty. Well, it, it was, it was customary. To have someone at the front door meeting guests as you took off your sandals to wash your feet. Now, this was not a job that anybody wanted to do. This is something where the master of the house uh, would instruct a servant or a slave. You are doing this task. It was um, very undesirable. If you were a Jewish person, a Jewish boy in, um, in the home, and you were tasked with washing feet, that job was too far below you. And you would get, of course, you wouldn't have to instruct that, father or the, the master of the house, it would already be known. That's a task for a Gentile slave. And so a Gentile slave would come in and would wash the feet of the, desk, the guests um, and get off whatever uh, dust, dirt, mud, whatever else might be there, and would towel them dry. And they would then go into the home. Now, on, on this particular event, here in John chapter 13, Jesus is celebrating the Passover privately. There is no servant. There is no slave. Now, the Synoptic Gospels tell us that the, um, the, the disciples were... Um, we're, we're arguing with one another about who was the greatest among them. So you can be absolutely certain that as the men came into this home and took off their sandals, seeing that there was no one there to wash their feet, they probably expected that Jesus would have made that arrangement. Nope. You, you, can, you can imagine that as they came into the house, took off their sandals, 
they would be saying, well, there's no way I'm going to be washing his feet. I'm better than he is. I'm greater than he is. Hmm. So as they came into the room, they took off their sandals and they found themselves around the table. Now, this is probably a triclinium, which is a three-sided table. Three-sided so that in the middle, that's where, where, where someone would come and would serve the food. As you came in, it was a, the triclinium was a very low table. You, you would recline at the table, and you would prop yourself up with your left arm. Your legs would, would either be to the side or behind uh, the, the center of the, uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the table. And according to the scriptures, um, they, uh, verse 4, Jesus got up from the supper. So they, they, they had seated themselves. And before they started eating, Jesus got up. They decide his garments. And he took a towel and he girded himself with that towel. Just tied it around his waist. Second page of your notes. Point number two. Wash and dry. Verse five. Jesus poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. What do you think these men were thinking? None of them got up and said, Oh, Jesus, let me, let me, let me get that, let me get that. No, they didn't say that. Matter of fact, they didn't say anything. I imagine they were horrified, startled, feeling guilty, embarrassed. And then Jesus comes to Simon Peter, verse 6. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, do you Wash my feet? What? I, 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 uh, he couldn't tolerate the thought of it. And before he's able to, to before he's able to utter a, 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 an official protest, Jesus says to, to, to Peter, verse 7, what I do, you do not realize now, but but you'll understand hereafter. What Jesus is, 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 is talking about here is, is uh, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus' death, ascension, uh, exaltation in heaven, um, uh, days afterwards, he would, uh, at, at Pentecost, he would, he would send the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit then, as he does now, indwells every believer, and the Holy Spirit leads us into an understanding of the Scriptures. It's what he does. So Jesus is saying, I, I, I know you don't understand now, but you will. 
When the Holy Spirit comes, you're going. All of this is going to make sense to you, Peter. Bear with me right now. Verse eight. So Peter 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 launches into his um, um, his 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 statement. Um, and never shall you wash my feet. Now in verse six, he addresses Jesus as Lord. And indeed he is. Uh, but it's almost like uh, when we get to verse 8 that Peter is donning uh, the captain's cap and is uh, steering this ship. Um, no, nah, I'm, I'm in charge. I'm, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're not going to wash my feet. <laughs> oh, Peter. If, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus gives us a hint here that we're not just talking about a little bit of physical dirt on somebody's feet and ankles. We're talking about something else. Notice Peter's response in verse 9. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Isn't that interesting? Why does he pick out these two parts of him to, for Jesus to watch? Hands and head. Think about it. Your hands have to do with what you do. Your head has to do with how you think. Did Peter begin to understand that Jesus was talking about more than just physical dirt? Was Peter saying, Lord, Lord I, I need you to cleanse my hands. That is, cleanse what I do. And cleanse my head. Cleanse how I think. Is Peter thinking that way? Absolutely not. No. This man is earthy to the core. He hadn't, he hadn't any knowledge of these kinds of spiritual, uh, spiritual truths and realities. But Jesus was getting him ready so that a little bit later he could swim in the deep end. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now he says in the next verse, John clarifies in the next verse, uh, that the one who is not clean, the, the one who is not clean in his heart and his soul is Judas Iscariot, the traitor. That's the one who's not clean that is present at that table at that moment. Now, Judas is going to be dismissed uh, very, very shortly. But Jesus gives us an understanding here that the, the kind of cleansing that is illustrated in the foot washing is something that is deep. It's not just superficial. He makes this point. Positionally, I am clean. 
completely clean in Christ. Jesus said um, in verse 8, I do not wash you, you have no part in me. We have to be cleansed by the Lord, and when he cleans us up on the inside, we are completely clean, as he says. I put a a handful of scripture references in your notes at this point. I don't want you to turn there. I want you to simply listen. The references are there for you to turn to later, which I hope you will do. Ephesians 1, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Complete forgiveness. Titus chapter 2, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Hebrews chapter 10. By one offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The sanctified ones are the believing ones. The ones who have been justified. Those who are are, are sanctified, he has perfected for all time. Completely clean. 1 John chapter 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That person who puts their faith, their trust, their hope, their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that person who has confessed their sin, repented of their sin, turned to the Savior, that one, his sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. He is completely clean. Clean. Forgiven. There's nothing held against him. But we're still sinners. Even though forgiveness is mine, I am completely clean in Christ. Nevertheless, I continue to sin. What's to be done of that? Ah, that's why we have this picture of foot washing. Jesus says, verse 10, he who has bathed, and he's looking at all these men who are dressed up, ready to eat the Passover meal together, best plateware, best flatware, the goblets, the tablecloths, everything is just nice. You guys have taken a bath. You've trimmed your beard. You look great, by the way. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Positionally, 
I am completely clean in Christ. But practically, I need a spiritual, daily foot washing. Because the, the, the sin that I get tangled up in today is not going to kick me out of heaven if I'm already one of God's children. Oh, but it, it, it can affect my relationship with the Lord. It can sour that relationship. I've got to keep short accounts with the Lord. I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. I just read verse 7, and I'm going to read it again. I, I, I want you to see the connection between my position in Christ and my practical relationship with him on a day-by-day basis. First John chapter uh, 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, end of the verse, the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Keep going. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The confession of sin, the repentance of sin, cleanses us from the daily sin that can tarnish our relationship with the Lord. Psalm 139. This ought to be our prayer before the Lord. David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thought. See if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting God, wash my feet. I need that dirt from my sin to be removed. All we need is to be washed. He who is bathed Needs only to wash his feet. He is completely clean. Now, in the time remaining together, I, I, I want to linger over application of, of, uh, of this passage of Scripture. And I, I'd like to explore a little bit about what does it mean to be completely clean? What does it mean to be Forgiven. Without doubt, you've you've heard the uh, uh, the phrase that we are we are called to forgive and forget. Well, this is based on what God has done in us. 
our response to other people that have offended us, wronged us in whatever way, uh, our response is a mirror of what we see Christ has done toward us. Turn with me over to the book of Colossians for just a moment. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 12. I'll, I'll start. start the, uh, this, that's where the sentence starts. I'll, I'll pick it up there. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against everyone, anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I'm reading out of the New American Standard text. And you'll notice in verse 13, uh, a couple of, of um, participles at the beginning of that verse. Bearing with and forgiving. Forgiving each other. The, the, the word forgiving is... Um, it's technically a participle, but <clears throat> but it has the, the the power, the force of an imperative, meaning it's a command. This is not optional. This is not a not a negotiable item. I am commanded by the Lord to forgive. And here's the standard. Enter that verse. Just as the Lord forgave you. I am called, I am commanded to forgive others just as Christ has forgiven me. Now think about this for a moment. How has Christ forgiven us? Does he just simply wave a magic, magic wand or throw pixie dust in the air and whoever it falls on is, uh, is forgiven? Forgiveness is always by grace. We don't earn it. We don't buy it. We can't find it or secure it in any way. It's not a, it's, it's not a, a um, a payback that I get because I believe in him. Forgiveness is purely a gift. That said, it is always, always accompanied with confession and repentance. You see, a person has to be justified. They have to be born from above. They, they, they have to be given a new nature. That, 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 that heart of stone that doesn't beat anymore has to be removed, and a heart of flesh has to be replaced. I have to be a new person. In order that I see my need, confess my sin, repent of my sin, and turn to the Savior. So, so confession and repentance are, are an integral part of forgiveness. 
God never forgives. Without this accompanying confession and repentance. Now the order may be a little bit uh, uh, different than what we would expect. But in our human relationships, repentance and confession are, are, are necessary essentials for forgiveness to take place. This this idea that we 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 simply throw pixie dust on on the people that have hurt us and we're supposed to walk away and forgive and forget. That's not biblical. Let's talk about this idea of of forgetfulness for just a moment. Um, when when we say. Um, that we we are to, we are we are to for, forget. Uh, it's 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 based on on how we have been forgiven by God. Are, are are we saying that God has dementia? Are are we saying that God um, somehow um, erases data on his hard drive? He scrubs it somehow so that it uh, the, those, those sins and those offenses never show up on his computer screen again? Listen to the testimony of Scripture. Again, I printed these in your notes. Um, you, you can go back and look at them. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Think about that. David wrote that. He, he, he did not say, as far as the north is from the south. Why not? Because that's quantifiable. We know exactly where the North Pole is. We know exactly where the South Pole is. And we know exactly what the distance is. God didn't remove our sins from us uh, just this much. No, he removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And there he died to make it happen. Isaiah 37, I'm sorry, 38, verse 17. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 43, verse 25. God speaks. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He will not remember our sins? Does that mean that God is not omniscient anymore? Does that mean he is not all-knowing? No, he knows every single sin you have ever committed. It has not been erased. He does have it in his mind. He knows all things. So what does that mean? That he puts his our sin behind his back or that he remembers our sin no more. It means that he holds it against us no longer.
Turn with me to um, the Gospel of St. Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. We find some very helpful and instructive verses from the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, when Jesus says he listens to you, he is, he is uh, saying that, that that one has confessed and repented, making forgiveness possible, and then it is our responsibility to respond extending forgiveness. You've won your brother. Now, if, verse 16, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let me boil down what Jesus is saying. There are are, are two brothers in Christ. There is an offense. And you go to that person who has has committed the sin. You confront him. He, He confesses and repents. Whether you have two or three people, you have a whole church there, he confesses and repents. That's where forgiveness is extended. If that confession and that repentance is not present, you can continue to talk about that with other people. So that that person will come to the point of confession and repentance. And then you've won your brother. And that's where forgiveness is extended. Let's say for the sake of illustration that there is um, uh, a husband and a wife that have uh, a, a, a disagreement. Uh, there is a there is a there is no. That's not a disagreement. There's a, there is a sin issue that has come up. That person who is the sinner, is confronted, and and that person confesses and repents of the wrongdoing. If you're married, you've, you've walked down this road more than once. The person who is, um, who, who is the sinner has come clean. And you, as the other uh, party, have the responsibility to forgive. Regardless of the other person's response, we are responsible to show love and patience and compassion. But that chief prize of forgiveness is extended 
where there is confession and repentance. And now, with, with that person having come and confessed their sin, uh, repented of their sin, the other, the other party has a responsibility to forgive. And here's how that works. It's never brought up again. We're done. That issue is behind us. It's as though we are going to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us, just as God forgives us. He puts our sin behind His back. And from a human point of view, it's as though He forgot it. From a heavenly point of view, He simply doesn't bring it up. It's done. So now if the, if, the, if, the, if the party who is responsible to forgive does bring it up, oh, now we have a different sin issue. To forgive means that I am not holding sin against another. Second point of application. Let me talk for just a second about um, the connection between forgiveness and consequences. To forgive um, opens a way up for a, a healed and healthy relationship. But that doesn't mean that there are not temporal consequences that follow. Let's say that a a um, um, man and woman, are both, both of which are believers, um, have to deal with the sin of adultery. One of, the, one of the parties is guilty of adultery. And when confronted, that, that uh, the, uh, the guilty party confesses and repents. The one who is um, not guilty uh, of, of that particular thing has the responsibility to forgive. We are done with that issue. Of course, if the sin is repeated, then we have to deal with it all over again. But let's say that it's, it's, it's done. The other person is, has, has a responsibility to forgive. Now, there may be um, great benefit, um, and God may be glorified, in keeping the relationship together. But there are consequences for our sin. Temporal consequences, even for believers. And in this particular case, uh, there may be a dissolution of the marriage. Different scenario. Let's say that you're a small business owner and you have an employee responsible in financial things for the company who you have found to be embezzling funds. You confront the individual, he claims to be a believer in Christ. You confront him and he acknowledges his sin, confesses his sin, repents of his sin. You have the responsibility as 
as uh, uh, not just an employer, but, but as a brother in Christ to forgive him of his sin. Not bring it up again. That does not mean that you immediately trust the person or that you immediately, um, uh, or, or that you, you continue to allow him to be on the payroll. He may endure the temporal consequences of jail and being out on the street looking for another job. To forgive does not mean there are no consequences. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, uh, professor, uh, activist. I, I suppose that word might, might fit. He was executed in Nazi Germany less than a month before Germany fell in 1945. He had much to teach us, and um, particularly in in our life together as believers in that crazy period of time where the church was underground in many ways. In his simple book titled Life Together, Bonhoeffer writes this. When God was merciful to us, we learned to be merciful with each other. When we received forgiveness instead of judgment, we too were made ready to forgive our brethren. What God did for us, we then owed to others. The more we received, the more we were able to give. Thus God made himself, I'm sorry, let me start that again. Thus God himself taught us to meet one another as God has met us in Christ. So on the authority of the scriptures, particularly this uh, set of verses in John 13, I urge you to be a foot washer. Do the dirty work. Restore what needs to be restored. Show humility, kindness, compassion, love, And when confession and repentance are present, to show the same kind of forgiveness Christ has shown you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the scriptures and this interaction that Jesus had with the Apostle Peter. I'm grateful to learn of your complete forgiveness. I know too well how easily I sin on a daily basis. And I grieve the Spirit. I quench the Spirit's work in my life. I, for one, Father, not only confess that, but I repent. 
I don't want to go there again. I want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want His life to be my life. Change us, shape us, transform us to be people that are just like Jesus. In his name we pray.